Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hi, Chris. Great to have you here. Well, good morning, Crispin. Likewise, likewise. How are you? Chris, I'm very good, very good. Great to hear you. And uh, what will you be talking to us about today? I see you're talking about uh, blood vessels in a dish. (laughs) Yeah, I had a very interesting experience this week because I popped along to a laboratory run by a guy called Sanjay Sinha, who's a cardiologist, a heart doctor at Cambridge University. And he has published a a big paper this week in one of the world's most important journals. And this is Nature Genetics. And what he's doing is taking skin cells from patients who have a certain disease, an inherited condition called Marfan's syndrome. People who have this, about one in 5,000 of the population have this problem. They, and we we think actually the, the US President Abraham Lincoln may have had Marfans as well. People who have this characteristically tend to be quite tall, they have long bones, and they also have quite long fingers. That's not a problem. But inside themselves, their blood vessel, the aorta that comes out of their heart, tends to stretch and it can rupture in early age in some of these people. And scientists want to know why. And what Sanjay Sinha has been able to do, by taking skin cells from people with this condition, he can convert the skin cells into stem cells and then they can grow the stem cells in the right combinations of growth factors in a dish in the laboratory and they recreate effectively the disease these people have got in a dish so they can then study the cells in the dish to work out why this happens in people who have Marfan syndrome and then they can begin to ask are there any drugs out there that are already on the market which are being used for other conditions which affect the processes that seem to be going wrong in these people and they found at least one possible new target which means we might be able to put these people on some drugs from an early age which reduces their risk of having heart problems Wow Chris, uh, how, how many people globally are uh, uh, affected by Marfan syndrome? Well, there's going to be some degree of geography here because, uh, you know, you get this thing called a founder effect, which is where if a, a, a disease is caused by a single gene and one group of people who happen to have some of those genes in the population go and start a new community somewhere, you're going to see hotspots where there are going to be more people with it. But on average, it's about one person in 5,000 all around the world. There are about mm, 7.2 billion people in the world, so that's many millions who could potentially be having this. Good grief. And uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies must be playing, paying very close attention to this, I'm sure. Well, one of the really interesting things which is emerging from modern science is that because of studies of this sort of type, what we're now able to do is to say, well, this drug which was tested, it was proved to be safe in humans, but didn't quite pan out for treating the initial condition that it was invented for, 
actually, when you test it in other situations like this one, oh, look, it seems to work. And so what we're seeing is this sort of renaissance of drugs which are given a, a whole new lease of life because they, they turn out to have effects on other conditions, other diseases and other systems way beyond what they were originally dreamt up for. But because someone's gone to all of the headache and the expense because it costs billions to test a drug, get a drug into patients, then actually, yes, it's great because we actually have, some, in some circumstances, opportunities to get drugs to market or into patients who need them far, far faster than would otherwise happen. Wow, Chris. Chris, we've, as usual, our lines are, are, are lighting up and people wanting to talk with you. Please, we invite you to call in and uh, ask your questions to our Naked Scientist. Um, we've got Rafilwe from Oikluf calling us. Rafilwe, welcome. Uh, morning and how are you? Very good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Um, I just have two questions, um, short ones. One, um, I'd like to ask, I don't know whether it can access a really dumb or funny question. Chris, I don't eat fruits at all. Is there a reason for that? Every single time when I try an apple, it comes back up. Is there a reason why my body cannot tolerate that? Uh, because when, you know, when somebody offers you a fruit and then you say, sorry, I don't eat fruits, it sounds very, very weird because I eat vegetables, but I cannot tolerate fruits at all. And the second mm. question is my daughter's got severe allergies. Um, she's two. Her eyes are always dripping tears. It's as though she is crying all the time, and yet she's not. So my question to you, yes, it's been to a pediatrician. Yes, I know that it's allergy. Yes, I know I need to put eye drops on. Will this pass, or will she always have teary eyes? And is the... Rafilwe, thanks for your question. Chris? Okay, well, the first one first, the, the fruit question. Most of the time, when things like this happen, if other things go down and they stay down and they don't produce the same symptom, one would probably assume that's something psychological. And it would be an interesting experiment to do to turn some fruit into something that wasn't obviously fruit. For instance, put some fruit into some soup and then eat the soup and see if that stays down. And remember, tomatoes are fruit, so if you can eat tomato soup, okay, then probably it's a psychological thing rather than it being something physical. Although it is possible that there's something in certain classes of fruit which doesn't agree with you, the only way to find out would be to get a specialist to investigate. Now, in terms of uh, your daughter, sorry to hear that she's a bit poorly with allergies. It's becoming more common, actually, particularly as we all embrace a, a cleaner lifestyle. Paradoxically, we live more cleanly, we live longer, but we live with more problems, including more, aller more allergic conditions. Uh, sometimes, as the immune system matures, allergy responses do, do, do diminish, and this is because your immune system becomes better at regulating itself. There's part of the immune system that attacks and reacts to things. There's another part of the immune system that's in charge of damping down reactions to things, and it's supposed to damp down things, reactions against things that are not bad for you. It may be that that's going to take a little bit longer to mature, but sometimes, unfortunately, allergies don't mature, they go the other way and um, you end up with a worse allergy because your immune system gets better at reacting against the thing which it's learning to react against. So the, the bottom line with an allergy is the best way to avoid allergies is to avoid the thing you're allergic to. If you can't avoid the thing you're allergic to, which is very, very difficult in the majority of cases, 
then things which help you to control the symptoms, like antihistamines and sometimes things like steroids, can be very useful. But again, that, that, that piece of advice is not a replacement for going and seeing somebody who can actually check that the diagnosis really is an allergy and uh, also optimising the management because it's miserable having allergies. I know when I was little and I had hay fever, I hated it. Thanks, Chris. Uh, we have Andrew from Pretoria. Andrew, you've got a question for our naked scientist. Yes, yes thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Um, I want to speak about planet Venus. I see that records from uh, astronomers from countries like uh, India, China, Greece, Mexico, Peru, and Egypt, they they only knew of a planet system of four planets only without Venus. Immanuel Velikovsky says that Venus was thrown off Jupiter in a violent expansion and was a comet with a tail for a long, long time and went passing close to Earth and Mars, caused immense catastrophes. This goes back to uh, 3.4 thousand years and 2.6 thousand years ago. And this was also during the time of the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. 1,500 years ago, plus minus that. And this might probably explain the partition of the waters that the Jewish people went through. During that time, the sun and moon were rising from the opposite direction, and they didn't move for days in the night. Now, Mercury is closer to the sun than Venus, and the temperature is minus. And Venus is 4,460 degrees now, and is still cloudy. Um, what is your uh, answer to this, please? Thank you. Hi, Andrew. Well, well, just to, co to correct a couple of the dates and things there, Venus is a terrestrial planet. It's one of the rocky worlds, second in from Mercury, after Mercury from the Sun. It's our nearest neighbour, it's roughly the same size as the Earth, and it didn't arrive there recently. Venus has been there for a really long time. The Earth's four and a half billion years old, give or take. Venus formed around the same time. So these rocky worlds all formed at roughly the same time when the solar system was condensing out of this cloud of dust and gas around our protostar. So I don't think there's any evidence that an object as big as Venus came zipping in from Jupiter. Jupiter is a gas giant, and Jupiter is made principally of stuff like hydrogen. And Venus is not made of gas, it is a rocky world. Jupiter has captured some objects, that's why it's got uh, big bodies like um, its satellite, Saturn has Titan, Jupiter has things like Ganymede, so they have got big moons, but nothing on the scale of... of uh, Venus. So I, I don't think that's quite true. Um, th therefore, it doesn't really tie up with the historical picture that you're painting for us. And I don't think there's any evidence that uh, the, the sun and the moon went the other way around either. So under these circumstances, I think it's quite a good story, but there's not really any scientific facts to back it up. Thanks, Chris. That was an illuminating answer. Um, tough question. Great response. Um, we're switching to Zuki. Zuki, thanks for calling. 
Zuki's from hi, Cape Town. Mm. Hi, Kristen, and hi, Chris. Um, I heard a, a statistic the other day saying that uh, polar bears can smell human blood from 30 kilometers away. So my question is, how how is this measured? How do the people that give us these facts know this? Hi, Suki. I, I don't know that statistic, but I'm willing to believe that they are exquisitely good at sniffing out their lunch. Because when your survival depends on finding your dinner, and you have to find your dinner in a wilderness which is very, very hostile, then you become very, very good at doing that kind of thing. Now, they're not alone in having exquisitely good senses of smell. If you think about it, animals like sharks, which swim around underwater, have incredibly well-developed special senses. They can develop electrical impulses. They can sense electrical impulses in the water released by fish that swim nearby. They can also smell the chemical cues released by fish, fish including fish blood and other fish metabolites, so they can swim and find their lunch. And they do it because when you have a source of something, the number of molecules that you're sniffing out is greatest in concentration close to the source. And as it spreads out through the water or through the air, if you're sniffing a smell in the air, the concentration of those molecules diminishes. And most animals that hunt down a smell like this, they do it by moving backwards and forwards through the environment in a sort of crossways pattern. You, f you go backwards and forwards across the direction of the smell and you continuously compare the concentration how strong the smell is and this enables you in the case of a fish to swim uh, upstream to find the source or in the case of a bird or a, a moth even moths can sense parts per billion smells of other moths in the air in the air and that's how they find the mate they go towards the source so i'm not surprised that you say a polar bear can sniff out things from a, a long way away also remember that um a human scent or or any kind of food source is going to stand out like a sore thumb in an area where it's pretty barren there's not much else growing so there are not many smells to compete with it so i'd say it's pretty likely that these animals have got very highly honed senses and it's not unlikely that they can sniff you out from a long way away they do have very good well-developed special senses that to help them do that because their life quite literally depends on it. Thank you, Chris. I do want to remind the listeners that we are on 021-446-0567. Uh, if you're calling from Johannesburg, 011-883-0702 is the number. Our SMS line is 31567 or 31702. Um, we're going to be switching to an ad and we'll be right back with the callers. Thanks for calling and thanks for joining us so far. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Welcome back. We are uh, standing, Crispin Son, standing in for Reedy Tlaby on the 9 to 12 show. And we've got your Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, with, uh, with us. Chris, our next call is from Malcolm in Johannesburg. Malcolm, thanks for calling. Yes, hi. Uh, hi, Chris. And hi, Chris. Um, Good morning, Malcolm. Chris, about, about 11 months ago, I suddenly started developing like a purple patch on my right foot. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, I, I developed an abscess there. I went to see a dermatologist and uh, they gave different creams and cortisone. Nothing improved. And then eventually... They sent it away, and it came back with a diagnosis of lividoid vasculopathy. Now, he, he didn't, he'd never heard of it. In fact, most doctors that I spoke to have said I've never heard of it. I've met one professor who I went to see 
who said to me, uh, uh, Robin, uh, Malcolm, I've, I've actually heard of it, uh, but in 40 years, this is the first time I've ever seen it. So it's been going on for 10 months. It's the most painful thing. I've had about 12, 13 different abscesses. They've got me on all sorts of pills. They've had me do hyperbaric pressure. Um, I just wanted to know if perhaps you knew about it and could perhaps give me some more information on it as to how it could possibly be cured. Uh, well, I'm really sorry to hear about your situation. Can you just spell it for me? Because I've not, I didn't catch the word. I got the vasculopathy yeah. bit, but I didn't get the first word you said. L-I-V-E-R-E-O-I-D. So L-I-V-E-R-E... L-I-B-E-R-D-O-I-D, one word. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm in good company by the sound of it, though, I must admit. I've not come across this, so I'm, I'm not going to make anything up. I've no idea what this is. I'm, I'm happy to, to go and have a, a look up, and I'm happy to have a chat to some of my dermatology friends and see if they can give me some, some information. Uh, but at this stage, I, I'm sorry I cannot add to the information you've already received. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks for calling. Uh, we are going to Joe in Pretoria. Chris, your next call is from Joe, is from Pretoria. Hi, Chris. Uh, Hi, Joe. Hey, Kristen, uh, how are you? I am very good. How are you? I'm uh, good, thanks. Uh, my question uh, uh, is about uh, the use of medical marijuana and uh, the, 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 the ongoing saga... Uh, uh, surrounding it, uh, having it depleting brain cells and so forth. But uh, people use it for medical purposes. I just want to know, do those people also suffer the loss of, 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 of the brain cells that die because of, of the use of marijuana? Or why is it uh, legal and illegal in, in uh, some parts of the world? Thank you, Joe. Okay, so ma marijuana is the stuff we get from the marijuana plant. It's a drug, and the principal ingredient that people take it for are cannabinoid agents, including THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, and there are other chemicals in there as well. And the sticky buds that the plant makes are covered in this oily material, which is what the cannabis is. That, that's the thing that people are collecting to smoke. And this chemical, when you smoke it or you eat it, dissolves quite well into the bloodstream. It's then delivered where the blood goes, which is to your brain. And in the brain, there are receptors, which are chemical docking stations in various parts of the brain. But actually, it turns out in almost every tissue in the body, there are receptors. And cannabis, which you get from a cannabis plant, things like THC, they look that the molecules that come from cannabis look like the natural molecule in your body that would normally bind onto those receptors. So the cannabis that you take fools your body into thinking there are more of its own natural signals there and those receptors dock with the cannabis molecule and it then changes the behaviour of cells which are expressing those receptors. And in the case of brain cells, it changes your brain function. But as I say, as far as we can tell, almost every tissue in the body has receptors and therefore cannabis can have effects on every tissue in the body. Now, in terms of what does it do in your brain, well, the evidence is one of the things it does is it affects the hunger centre. You have a region of your brain called the hypothalamus and this controls how active you are when you feel tired, when you want to go to sleep, when you feel 
hot when you feel cold, but also it controls appetite. And this is why people get the marijuana munchies, because if you stimulate this system, which cannabis does, it makes you want to eat, and you want to eat when you don't actually need to eat, so it tends to promote weight gain. That's one thing it does. The other thing it does is it strongly affects the motivation centres in the brain. And it looks like it demotivates people because it basically hardwires your brain to have less motivation to, to uh, form, uh, sort of stim to stimulate yourself less well. And it also affects memory. There's evidence that uh, when you activate these receptors that you don't make memories as well when you're on this agent. And long term it might therefore have effects too. But overall there are also very serious consequences of smoking cannabis. It's very high in tar and it has a profound ageing effect on the lung. And people who have smoked a lot of cannabis have lungs which are in very bad shape indeed. So this is not a good idea. That said, there are therapeutic benefits from using drugs like cannabis and cannabis itself, and there are pharmaceutical companies that, that produce legally, they produce cannabis and turn it into drugs which can be administered and taken safely. And these have all kinds of uses, and they range from anti-emetics and sickness drugs um, to helping people not to feel so sick when they're having cancer chemotherapy and pain relief for people who have spasticity owing to neurological problems. So there's a range of things that are being investigated, and it may have potential, um, but it's also quite widely abused, and it can be quite bad for you. So uh, uh, this is neither a positive nor a negative for me. It's merely those are the facts. Thank you, Chris. That, uh, <laughs> I'm amazed at the, the responses and the detail behind this. Um, Chris... Uh, we're going to cross to one more caller, and that's Musa from Kempton Park. Musa, thanks for calling us. Hi, uh, Chris and Chris. Hi. Uh, Hi by Musa. the way, Nick, I just love hearing you. You are one smart man. But uh, recently, very recently, I was pepper sprayed, and I just want to know, how does pepper spray work, and should it ever happen to me again? What should I do? Well, I'd, I'd stop robbing banks or something, or, you know, that, that'd probably be a good piece of it. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, because I'm, I've never had this happen to me, but I have accidentally sort of done something similar um, when chopping chilies. Uh, it, it, it involved a sensitive part of the anatomy, and we'll leave it there. But what actually happens is that when you have pepper spray, this contains the chemical capsaicin, and capsaicin is the pungent, spicy ingredient in chilli peppers. So when you eat chilli and it burns your tongue and makes a hot sensation, this is capsaicin. The way it works is that you have a class of nerve fibres all over your body, which are called C fibres, and they are very tiny nerve fibres, and they are covered with a receptor, another kind of chemical docking station, which exclusively recognises capsaicin. So when you put capsaicin onto that nerve fibre, it docks with this receptor and it causes the nerve cell to let lots of sodium into the cell and this makes the cell get excited. And this sends off a barrage of impulses to your brain and those fibres normally tell your brain something is hot. So if you add a chemical to a bunch of nerve fibres that normally signal heat and it accidentally or, or artificially turns them on, it makes your body interpret the area which is in contact with the capsaicin as it must be burning hot and painful. 
And so wh wherever you have lots of these nerve fibres, where they're in contact with capsaicin, you will feel an intense burning pain. But there is no injury to the tissue because this is literally a chemical that's fooling your nervous system into thinking it's being burned. And this is why this is quite a good thing for crowd suppression or to fend someone off, because although it's very unpleasant as an experience when it's sprayed onto you, it doesn't have necessarily any long-term consequences because it's just a chemical fooling your nervous system into thinking it's being harmed. So once the stuff washes out, and it takes a while for the stuff to be washed off and to get away because it's, it's quite solid, soluble in fat, so water doesn't tend to displace it very easily. So it takes a little while for it to ooze out naturally and go away. But uh, that's why you get the burning experience that you do wherever you have contact. And places like your mouth, your lips, your eyes and other more sensitive bits of your body have a lot of the nerve fibres that are sensitive to capsaicin and that's why they burn if you get this stuff from chilies on those areas. Chris, thank you. It is it's always great listening to you. Thank you, as always. Very interesting, great responses. Thanks to our callers for posing the questions. Chris, thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers, Crispin, and you. And thanks for the great questions, everyone. We'll do the same thing next week, I hope. Thanks, Chris. Looking forward to it.